Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, today we're wrapping up a two-part mini-series I'm calling Next Level Leadership. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter 6 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. I've got an outline for you there so you can follow along with me and you have a little bit of hope that there will be an end to the message someday. So, uh, My goal in this two-part message series has been simply this. I want to show you uh, from the scriptures as best I can, uh, the kind of leaders our young church needs in order to step up to the next level of maturity. There are two offices in the New Testament described as essential for every local church. They are elders and deacons. Last week we looked at the qualifications and responsibilities of elders. Today I'd like us to look at the text related to deacons. Now, some of you might be wondering, why do I need to know what the Bible says about elders and deacons? I mean, come on, this is kind of boring. Can we get to a more exciting part of the Bible? Well, I thought of you this week, if you were wondering that. So here is a quick answer to that question. I've got a few bullets here for you. Uh, I could list more, but uh, for the sake of time, here's a few that come to mind. Why do you need to understand the roles of elders and deacons? Uh, the first reason that comes to mind is so that you don't have unbiblical expectations of your leaders. When reality does not rise to the level of our expectations, we end up disappointed. In all my years as a pastor, I, I believe this is one of the most common reasons people leave a church or stop going to church altogether because they were disappointed. They rarely leave over doctrine or disqualified leadership or differences in ministry philosophy. Disappointment says, I had expectations of you that I either did or did not communicate and you didn't meet them. Another reason you need to understand the role of deacons and elders is so you know when they're doing their job, when they are doing their job. For example, I'm unable to recall a time when I or another elder called a church member to lovingly speak to them about something they were doing to hurt the church, and they responded with, you know, you're right, Pastor, I, I need to repent. Thank you for doing your job as laid out in the scriptures and holding me accountable. I'm so grateful for you doing that. I've never had anybody do that. It'd be nice someday, I'm holding out hope, that that might happen. But instead, most church members are shocked when an elder calls them about an unbiblical divorce that they're pursuing, or the relationship they refuse to reconcile, or gossip that they're spreading. And this could be remedied, at least in part, by being aware that God has charged elders with protecting the church and deacons with serving the church. Another reason you need to know about these roles is so you can distinguish a real church from a fake one. The New Testament teaches that there always has been and always will be 
false teachers, false converts in false churches. And they exist because the adversary wants to use them to stop the spreading of the true gospel. It's all over the New Testament. And one of the many ways you can spot a real church is by looking to see if they have deacons and elders and whether they are qualified or not qualified. And then the fourth reason that comes to mind why you need to know the roles of deacons and elders is men in particular, so you have a target to aim for. Men, if you want to see God use you more in his church, then strive to be like an elder or a deacon described in 1 Timothy 3. Not only will you desire a noble task, as Paul says, but you will also be a great blessing to your church and your home. Now last week, we learned that elders protect the Lord's church by leading with humility. Today, we're going to see and this is your big idea, that deacons minister to the Lord's church by serving with humility. They minister to the Lord's church by serving with humility. The book of Acts is arguably the most unique book in the New Testament. On the one hand, it is a sequel that describes how the gospel message spread across the world after the events that were recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. On the other hand, Acts also serves as a chronicle that provides behind-the-scenes footage for the rest of the New Testament churches. It was written by Dr. Luke, and Acts allows readers to follow the gospel's journey from the eastern side of the world at that time, Jerusalem, all the way to the western side of the world in Rome, across 28 chapters. And throughout the narrative of Acts, today's believers are able to see the amazing miracles that took place in the early church and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are also able to see that the early church was not perfect. It had problems, just like every church does today. We see that the early church was no walk on the beach. In fact, the New Testament believers were relentlessly harassed, viciously persecuted, and gruesomely martyred for their faith in Christ. Their churches also dealt with divisions, theological arguments, and internal conflict. Now, I say all that just to give you a little bit of a backdrop or context for the book of Acts as we look at Acts chapter 6 today. Acts chapter 6 gives us one example of the many issues that existed in the early church. And in this example, there was internal conflict. And we are going to see how it was handled by looking at chapter 6 today. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Luke writes, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full member, excuse me, full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer 
into the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's the first point on your outline that we can glean from this text today. It's in Acts 6, and that is that local church deacons also originated in the early church. Local church deacons also originated in the early church, just like elders did. They've existed since the first century. However, unlike elders, they didn't exist at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. As you will soon see, uh, well, they came along later here, but also, as you will soon see, the issue that led to the creation of deacons was a combination of racial tension and growing pains all wrapped up into a nasty hairball that, that just got spit out at the apostles' feet. Now, here's uh, letter A on your outline. The first thing that we see in the, how they handled this issue is that increasing needs in a growing church created problems. It created problems. And this should be a sobering reminder to those who have said, and I've heard this many times over the years, oh, wouldn't it be so great if we could be a New Testament church like an Acts? If we could just see the miracles and the power of the Spirit just like an Acts? Well... What I find interesting is that those folks also don't want the persecution and the problems that existed in Acts. Because as I said earlier, the early church had problems just like every church does today. Now, notice it says the disciples, uh, when the disciples were increasing in number, at this point in Acts, in the chronology of Acts, there was only one church. And that was the church in Jerusalem. Saul had not become Paul yet, and he had thus not started to plant churches. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 9. And so we know from Acts 4.4 4 that the last attendance report of this Jerusalem church was about 5,000 men. So this is a large church that had some big problems they needed to deal with. And so we see in verse 1, a complaint arose. The word complaint comes from a word in the original text that means to murmur or to mutter in secret. It's that divisive type of grumbling that it's done with a murmur, 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 murmur. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's done behind closed doors because those who are doing it don't want to be known for doing it. Now, we need to be careful that we avoid thinking the Lord's okay with complaining in his church just because something good came out of this. As the old saying goes, the ends does not justify the means. In fact, I surveyed the scriptures to look at examples of complaining amongst God's people, and this is the only example where I can see something good came out of it. All the other examples I found bad, and the Lord wasn't happy. 
Now, the complaint was, you see in verse 1, by the Hellenists. Well, who are these people? Well, the early church was a melting pot of new believers from a wide range of different ethnic backgrounds and cultures. Some of the translations, different Bible translations, refer to this group as Grecian Jews or Greek-speaking Jews, depending on which Bible translation you have. Before Jesus came to earth and the church started, the Jews shared their faith and converted many to Judaism. And so, in essence, before Jesus came in the first century and before the church was started in Acts 2, there existed, in a very general sense, two types of Jews in the world. There were the pure-blooded Jews, those born in a Jewish family, and then there were Gentile Jews, which you might remember me saying a few weeks ago is basically anybody not born in a Jewish family. The Gentile Jews are this particular group of Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews that had converted to Judaism. They were sort of adopted into the family, but they weren't purebloods. Even back then, though, pure-blood Jews and Greek-speaking Jews had friction between them when they worshipped in the Old Testament temples. They didn't get along great, even though they shared the same faith. So when the gospel spread around Jerusalem, what happened is pure-blood Jews and Grecian Jews came to faith in Christ, and they came into the church. But unfortunately, they brought all their baggage with them and all the tension and history of conflict with them. It would be like, if I were to illustrate it, the Irish and the British bringing the conflict that has existed between them for centuries in Europe over to Boston in the 18th and 19th centuries. And the tension that affected the Irish and the British on the other side of the Atlantic, they bring it over to America in the New World. That's what it was like in the early church. These two groups already didn't like each other before they got saved, and they were still struggling to get along. So it says in verse 1 that a complaint arose by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected. Now, in Jewish culture, it was a custom for fathers to give their daughters a sum of money called a dowry to take into their new marriage so that if, by chance, the uh, marriage dissolved or the husband died, that daughter would have a way to provide for herself, to take care of herself. Now, depending on how old the widow was when the marriage dissolved, or excuse me, when her husband died, uh, sometimes the dowry would run out. Of course, it also would depend on how wealthy her dad was. And so there were widows who were not able to provide for themselves or work for themselves because either they were too old, not healthy, or they'd run out of dowry money. This is where the faith community comes in. The daily distribution that you see mentioned there in verse 1 was probably some kind of food bank in which food and clothes and money were distributed to the widows that were in the church. And so what was happening is these Hellenist, Greek-speaking believers were going, murmur, murmur, murmur. Hey, how come their widows are getting more stuff than our widows are? That's no fair. I saw that your grandma got more than my grandma did. And 
And so the grumbling was happening. That's not fair. How come? And there's this distrust between these two groups. And so the problem is brought to the apostles. Here's letter B. One of the things the apostles made clear and one of their conclusions is the preaching of God's word must remain a priority. So they had a problem, but they also have a priority. And that is, we cannot stop preaching the word because that would not please the Lord. And so, in verse 2, the apostles say, you know, it would not be, we should not give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Now, there's an important clarification here that I don't want you to miss. And that is that the apostles are not saying they were too important or too good to serve tables. Instead, they were saying, we can't provide everything the church needs by ourselves. And so just as any growing organization with growing problems has to do, the apostles decided to reorganize and restructure. And in doing so, they demonstrated great leadership, wise leadership, and sound stewardship. So we've got this problem. How do we meet the needs of the widows? That's important, but we cannot stop preaching the word. Let's reorganize. Let's restructure. And they create a position called deacon. Now, where's that word deacon come from? It actually comes from verse 2. If you look at your Bibles where it says serve, the word serve in the English, it's in the Greek text, it's the word diakoneo. And that is where deacon comes from. It means to serve or to wait on tables. More on that later. Next, we see in the text, the apostles also wanted these men pre-qualified. That's letter C. So there's a problem. They had a priority, though, of keeping the word going forth. But now they also wanted these men pre-qualified. The apostles state that they would appoint men to do this job, but they should be, first of all, men of good repute. Men of good repute. That's not a common turn of phrase in our culture today, but it simply means men with a good reputation or proven character. They should be well-liked by the church, not because they're popular, but because they are trustworthy. And trustworthiness is an important trait to have considering they would be ministering to fragile, vulnerable widows uh, in the church and they'd be handling the church's resources. So you don't want con men doing that. You don't want men with a, a history of abuse against women doing that. So they should be men of good repute. And their trustworthiness also could help ease the tensions between the Hellenists and the Hebrew believers. So you can just imagine how this would play out if, if there were some untrustworthy men appointed from the different groups. They'd be like, hey, 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 your deacon didn't serve enough to my grandmother. How come he gives more to your widows instead? And the problem would just continue on because they didn't trust each other. Next, we're told they should be full of the Spirit and wisdom. This refers to men who have a proven walk with the Lord. And in doing so, they are yielded to the Spirit's leading so they can make spiritually sensitive and wise decisions. Now, the process we're following this month as a church for appointing deacons comes from our bylaws, which are informed by the Scriptures. 
our elders have nominated a group of men whom we believe to be qualified to put before the congregation for a voice, not a vote. The congregation is then given a few weeks to raise any concerns with the candidates privately, and if no disqualifying issues are raised, we will ordain them next week. And the advisory team that we've had for the past five years will turn into a deacon team. So, deacons minister to the Lord's church by serving with humility. Now, if you would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's the other major passage on the office of deacons. We were there last week looking at the role of elders in 1 Timothy 3. And if you missed that message, I'd really encourage you to listen to it online or on our podcast. There's a lot of helpful information there on the role of elders and what they've been charged to do. So 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read verses 8 to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Here's a number two in your outline. Local church deacons must also be qualified, just like elders were that we saw last week in the previous paragraph. Local church deacons must also be qualified. And so like he did for elders, Paul provides a list of qualifications for the position of deacon. You might remember that First and Second Timothy were the last letters that Paul wrote before he died. And that he was writing them to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And so he's giving a lot of leadership wisdom and how to build a healthy culture in the church at Ephesus for young Timothy, who last I read was somewhere around 30 years old. By my count, there are eight qualifications that the apostle gives in this passage for deacons. He also lists four qualifications for their wives. Most of the characteristics are self-explanatory, so I'll just highlight a few that need a little explanation. Similar to last week, the qualifications, I think, can be broken down into three categories in order to just simplify them and help us understand them. The first being letter A, they must be qualified personally. They must be qualified personally. He says in verse 8, they must be dignified. Sounds like a hoity-toity word, doesn't it not? Maybe a little aristocratic, but it actually is just a general statement about their character. Uh, The original text just means they should be worthy of respect or honorable. Someone that the church would want to follow and trust with finances and things like that. Uh, Verse 8 also says, 
We should not be double-tongued. Should not be double-tongued. Now, that could put a scary picture in our minds, but here's the more literal translation. Well, actually, I'm sorry. The ESV provides the most literal translation, but the word in the original text means to not talk out of both sides of your mouth or to be two-faced. Thus, he should not be a man who says one thing to your face but another thing behind your back. Or... Sadly, and I've seen this happen before with deacons um, in another church, he shouldn't agree with a decision made in a deacon meeting or made by the elders, but then play the other side of the fence when some critical congregant complains to him about the decision. You know, like, I, I know, I know, John, I... I agree with you. Yeah, it stinks. I, I, if I was leading church, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I had no choice because all of them wanted to do this, you know. Even though the deacon voted for the decision while he was in the meeting. That kind of behavior is sinful and divisive and deadly in the Lord's church. That's why... Paul writes this. Don't, don't appoint a double-tongued man because it'll be deadly to the church. You see, weak men are double-tongued. They do it because they want to be liked by everybody instead of pleasing the Lord. On the contrary, godly deacons stand by the decision in public and they lead the church member to see why it's the best decision for the church. In doing so, it protects the unity of the church and it avoids throwing the rest of his fellow leaders under the bus. So, he should not be double-tongued, not two-faced, or talking out of both sides of his mouth. Next, in verse 8, Paul mentions not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, this is important because deacons handle the church's money. And since money is one of the first areas where Christians can fall into sin, deacons are not to be lovers of money. And this is vital because they'll handle the money, they'll manage the church budget, so there shouldn't be any temptation or possibility of pilfering or laundering money through the church or anything like that. Thus, a man who lacks integrity, integrity with his own personal money would not be allowed to be a deacon. And, I've seen this happen before, if a man is a deacon and he's struggling financially, he's not allowed to handle the church's money. He's assigned something else to do so that he won't be tempted to steal from the church. Uh, letter B, the next category that Paul gives us, is they must be qualified spiritually. They must be qualified spiritually. He says they must hold to the mystery of the faith. Now, this turn of phrase was sometimes used by Paul uh, to refer to the gospel. That's really what he means. And uh, you might remember from my Ephesians series, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 3, he uses that phrase, calling the gospel a mystery. In this context, what he's trying to get across is that the man being considered for the office should have a clear profession of faith and fruits of repentance. There should be no doubt that he's a believer. Verse 10, let them also be tested first. 
Let them also be tested first. Now, what does that mean? The phrase actually comes out of Greek culture and means uh, literally the testing of metals. The testing of metals. Now, it's not clear uh, from Paul how they should be tested, but typically, this is what I've seen done, and that is uh, a, a potential deacon candidate would be given a project or a job to do and then an opportunity to see whether he's responsible, whether he's faithful or not. And then using Jesus' wisdom of whoever's faithful with little can be trusted with much, such men can be then considered for the office. Another application of this verse is to look for men who are already acting like deacons. They are usually best qualified. They're already doing the job. So they must be tested first to see, are they trustworthy? Are they dependable? Are they responsible? Are they willing to serve with humility and eager to bless the Lord's church? Letter C, uh, the next and third category, is that they must be qualified domestically. Just as we saw with elders last week, they must be qualified domestically. Paul continues and says, uh, the wives of deacons must be dignified. This is not a, again, it's not a reference to how she dresses or what kind of perfume she wears or how she does her hair or anything. Again, just like her husband in verse 8, she should be worthy of respect and honorable. She should be someone the church would go, yep, that's a godly woman there, married to a godly man. She, she doesn't do anything that brings shame to the church. Now, the wives of both deacons and elders must possess outstanding character, just like their husbands, because they will often hear and see things that are confidential and sensitive. They will sometimes overhear a phone call, maybe, that their husband receives from me about a difficult situation, a discipline case, or a financial issue. And so the wives of deacons and elders have to be godly enough and of high enough character that they're not going to share that information with anybody. They're going to keep it confidential. Uh, another example I've seen before is that sometimes, sometimes the, the, the wives of elders and deacons or maybe elder or deacon couples are asked to help counsel another leader couple in the church. So say, for example, your small group leader, the husbands and wife, your husband and wife small group leaders were struggling in their marriage, considering divorce, well, then a deacon couple or elder might be asked to counsel them and meet with them for accountability. That is not something that needs to get out into the church. So again, this is where both the wife and the husband need to be dignified and not slanderers, as it says in verse 11. That's the next qualification. They should not be slanderers, the wives. To slander means to make false statements that would damage someone's reputation. Interestingly, oh, get ready for this. This is good. The Greek word that Paul uses here is diabolo, which is the title given to the devil. It means chief slanderer. For this reason, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson describes women who participate in this kind of talk as she-devils. I think it kind of is a good sobering reminder to think about what comes out of our mouths and what we talk about. 
in who we talk about and how we talk about them. Because we don't want to be like the adversary, the diabolo. Now, the next three phrases that are the same ones that Paul uses in verses 2, 4, and 5 describe the elders. And I explained these in my message last week in a little more detail, so I'll just touch on them quickly here. In verse 12, deacons should be husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. This essentially means a man who is faithful to his current wife. Paul was disqualifying adulterers and polygamists, which were common back in his day. Deacons also should manage their children well, in verse 12. In the original text, the word means to lead or to be out in front or to put before. It's, it's describing the husband being out in front of his family, showing them how to walk with Christ, and pointing them to the scriptures. If a man should be considered or would be considered for the office of deacon, he must manage his home well or it would be difficult for the rest of the church to respect him. Verse 13 is often overlooked when studying this passage, but I think it needs our attention. You see it there in your Bibles? It's a slightly tricky verse to interpret, which has caused commentators, evangelical commentators, to land in different spots in the same yard, meaning they're all in kind of the same ballpark, but they're all kind of going, well, it could mean this, it could mean this, it could mean that. Uh, Here's what I think Paul means by this. Notice the verse. It says in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? Gaining a good standing first and then secondly, they gain a great confidence in the faith. What's that mean? Well, the good standing, I think, that, well, I know this, the word comes from a word that means rank or grade or influence. Uh, Paul seems to be saying deacons who serve well will earn increasing respect or influence from the congregation. They may also see themselves entrusted with more responsibility in the church for their good service. Now, the second part of the verse, what does this mean that they, they, they gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus? Again, I think there are a few possibilities as to what Paul intended here, but I think it's most likely that he means a deacon who serves well as a deacon will not only strengthen his reputation, but also his faith. Because that kind of service and sacrifice that's required in the job, will help him experience firsthand what it was like for Jesus to serve and to sacrifice. So deacons minister to the Lord's church by serving with humility. Here's the last point in your outline, number three. What do they do? What do deacons do? Well, local church deacons, number three, must also carry significant responsibilities, just like elders, but they're different. As we saw in Acts 6, the early church elders created a general division of labor that, that looks like this, that you see here on the keynote screen behind me. Elders, in a general sense, minister to the spiritual needs of the church, 
where deacons minister to the physical needs. However, the responsibilities of deacons are not as clearly stated in the scriptures as they are for elders. There's really not a lot of information other than Acts 6 about what deacons are supposed to do. Elders, you might remember from last week's message, are charged with overseeing the doctrine, discipline, and direction of the church. And so, traditionally, what Protestant evangelical churches have done is they've assigned the following three things to deacons, and they are, letter A, finances. Finances. Just like your family, there is a visible people side of the church. And just like your family, there is also a business side of the church that most members don't see. It's like, I see your family here this morning, but I don't know what bills you have to pay, who you have your insurance with, and so on and so forth. Just as your family has bills to pay, insurance and legal documents that must be filed, so does the church. As a state-recognized corporation, our church has bank accounts that need monitoring, a budget that needs managed, staff that needs to be paid, uh, legal documents that have to be filed with the state and with the federal government so we can maintain our 501c3 status or our corporation status in the state. And just as all the money in your bank account belongs to the Lord, so do all the funds in the church's bank accounts. Deacons are entrusted with taking care of these things with great wisdom and the highest level of integrity. Next is facilities. Traditionally, Protestant evangelical churches have entrusted the responsibility of facilities to deacons. Just as your family has a mortgage or rent to pay, so does our church. We pay rent to the school district to use this facility. And just as your family has material possessions that must be purchased or replaced, you know, when your dishwasher breaks, you got to get another one. Or when your family expands, you get a bigger washer and dryer. In the same way, uh, our church has to purchase equipment or replace equipment. And that equipment's tracked and managed as belonging to the church. In our church our size, managing the facilities only involves overseeing what gets loaded in the trailer and what you see here on Sunday morning. In larger churches that have their own campus and facility, uh, there's building maintenance, utility bills, landscaping, and so much more that has to be taken care of. And then finally, letter, uh, letter C, uh, ordinances. The, the third general area that deacons are asked to oversee or handle is ordinances. An ordinance is a symbolic ritual that reminds us of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross through the gospel. The two ordinances that he commanded that we do are believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. So when you hear ordinance, it's either believer's baptism or the Lord's Supper. Deacons usually assist or oversee the logistics of these two ordinances so the elder performing them can focus on the spiritual aspect or spiritual side of it. So, finances, facilities, ordinances. Okay, how do we apply these passages, Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3? What do we do now that we've read these? I'll admit, it's a little more difficult to apply these to every 
member in the church, but I'm always going to do my best. So here's a couple, well, here's three that come to mind. Number one, the first application for men. I want to encourage you to strive to be deacon qualified. Strive to be deacon qualified. Some of you, because of your temperament or your spiritual gifts, uh, may never be elders, and that's okay. However, we will always need more deacon-qualified men who are willing to serve. Every family, every church, and every community needs more men who are dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to alcohol, not greedy for dishonest gain, and who hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And similar to what I said last week regarding elders, the men who serve as deacons won't serve forever. They're going to die someday. They may need a break. They, they may need, I mean, as you see in the, in the worship folder insert, they make a two-year commitment, but there may be a crisis that shows up. One of their spouses could have a, a bad health issue, I mean, where they need to take a break from serving the church to give more attention and devotion there. So we're always going to need a deep bench, is my point. Because the men who are serving in those roles right now, we, we're not, they're not guaranteed to always be there. Uh, things change, and the Lord does things. And not, it does, this is not to be sound insensitive or not. Or, uh, excuse me, I don't mean to sound insensitive when I say this, but in essence, the church has to say, next man up, and the ministry of the church continues, and then we minister to the deacon and his spouse if they're having a difficult season. Next, number two, for the women. Paul called you out in this text. Strive to become deacon wife qualified. Similar to the men, every family, church, and community needs more women who are dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. And similar to what I said last week with elders, ladies, you could be the one who makes your husband eligible or ineligible for the office of deacon. I've sat in more than one elder meeting at more than one church looking at a list of qualified deacon candidates only to see that some were disqualified because their wives were a liability. The husbands were godly, but their wives were not dignified, not sober-minded, not faithful in all things. Said so they were gossips, or they were slanderers, they were unsubmissive, maybe, or they're too opinionated, so they couldn't be trusted if they accidentally heard some confidential information that their husband was talking about on the phone, or if they accidentally saw an email on the home computer. The church just couldn't risk that. So they'd be like, you know, Joe, godly man, boy, his wife, whew, not good. Too much of a risk. We'll have to put him on the back burner, come back in two years, and hopefully she's grown in her walk with the Lord, and maybe she's more trustworthy, and then we can use Joe as a deacon. And finally, number three, for the entire church, for all of you here and all of you listening online, strive to serve well. This verse in verse 13 is intrigued me for a long time. I was glad to finally get a chance to study it more in depth this week because I've always wondered what Paul meant when he said, those who serve well. The New Testament makes it 
unambiguously clear that every professing Christ follower should serve in the local church that ministers to them. They should do something to serve the church. But when he says those who serve well, I think this verse could be applied to all believers, not just deacons. So if you call this church your church home, are you serving somewhere? I know many of you are. And if so, are you serving well? So like, do you serve consistently or only when it's convenient? Are you dependable? Do you show up on time? Do you let your team captain know when you're going to be out of town and arrange for a replacement for yourself? Because verse 13 says it should matter. Serve well. And in doing so, I think we can all gain the two things that Paul mentions in verse 13. We can gain more respect in the church from our peers, and we can further our spiritual maturity by serving well. Not carelessly, not flippantly. Eh. No, you're doing it for the Lord. Well, I once read a story about James L. Kraft, the founder of Kraft Foods, that I found very interesting. Kraft said that as a young man, he had the desire to become the most famous manufacturer of cheese products in the world. His journey to becoming rich and famous began in his youth when he sold his product out of a little wagon pulled by a pony he called Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y. After making his cheese, the little lad would load up his wagon and drive down the streets of Chicago selling his product. After a few months, the young Mr. Kraft began to despair because he wasn't making any money. Business was not going well, in spite of his long hours and his hard work. So one day, he pulled his pony to a stop and began to talk to him. He said, Patty, something is wrong. And it's not that I'm talking to you. <laughs> We're not doing this right, he said. I'm afraid we have turned things around and our priorities are not what they ought to be. Maybe we ought to serve God and place him first in our lives. And so Kraft drove home and made a promise to the Lord that for the rest of his life he would serve God first. And then work as God directed him. Many years later, while serving as a deacon at North Shore Baptist Church in Chicago, Kraft said this, I would rather be a layman at the North Shore Baptist Church than lead the greatest corporation in America. My first job is serving Jesus. May that be the mindset that we all have. Thankfully, We'll have deacons to show us how. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.